Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Green revolution, China promising it will be carbon neutral by 2060. Nike just does it. Digital growth powering the firm to an earnings beat. And a 25K Tesla, Elon's dramatic drive to bring battery costs down. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. A pleasure to be with you as always. We have lots to cover during the show today, including some historic scenes in the U.S. Capitol as the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg arrives at the Supreme Court for the final time. You're looking at live pictures and we will see her casket in around half an hour's time. A private ceremony will follow and then the public will be able to pay their final respects. Ginsburg will lie in the state on Capitol Hill on Friday, the first woman in U.S. history to achieve that honor. And we will bring you all the details of that ceremony live as they happen. For now, a look at the business headlines and a stock snapshot. As you can see, futures are mixed. The S&P and the Nasdaq rising for the first time in five sessions yesterday. We also, though, did hold some key technical levels. That's triggering hopes. I think that stocks may have found a bit of support at these levels. Recovery stocks also getting a boost pre-market from vaccine news. Johnson & Johnson's COVID shot entering phase three trials. That's sending shares for Johnson & Johnson a little higher here. Pre-market airlines also higher too uh, on hints from the U.S. government that perhaps more financial support for the sector may be forthcoming too to try and stem further furloughs and job losses to Asia now. Japan's Nikkei ticking lower on the first day of trading this week amid continued nervousness, I think, over U.S.-China relations. President Trump repeatedly calling COVID-19 the China virus yesterday at the UN. Meanwhile, Chinese state media overnight now suggesting that Beijing should block what it's calling the dirty and unfair TikTok deal. Yet the biggest divide perhaps between the two nations' leaders focusing on their views on climate change. Let's get to the drivers. That's where we're beginning. China promising a green revolution. President Xi Jinping telling the UN General Assembly his country will be carbon neutral by 2060. China is currently the world's biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. It's also admittedly one of the leaders of renewable investment too. Will Ripley is live in Hong Kong for more. Will, I think the response here is going to be cautious optimism, but actions speak louder than words. How are they going to achieve this? This has been the consistent theme in the response to President Xi's speech. It was well received, Julia, but just like you said, people want to see concrete action because there have been previous speeches that President Xi has made and the pledges for you know free trade 
when China's markets are closed to most of the world, world peace when China's militarizing the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. These are pledges that President Xi has made that haven't come to fruition. But when it comes to climate change, which arguably is the biggest crisis facing all of us on this earth, even though COVID-19 is our focus right now, China bringing that issue back into the spotlight, and that is a good thing environmental activists say, including Greenpeace. So this green revolution, uh, President Xi laying out that essentially China aims to reach its peak of carbon emissions within this decade, so within 10 years. By 40 years, China is pledging now to be carbon neutral. This is the first time that China has actually given a timeline uh, of their goals for this sort of thing. And remember, unlike the United States, which, which thinks in four-year increments uh, every presidential cycle, because President Xi has effectively set the stage that he could be president for life, they can think in 40, 50, 100 year increments and come up with a plan. So if this is what President Xi is saying, they certainly do have the power uh, to implement that at the government level and also industrial level as well. Uh, she also pledging that China will scale up its targets uh, that were that it made in the Paris uh, Climate Accord, which nearly 190 countries signed, uh, a deal that President Trump is in the process of pulling the United States out of, calling it a one-sided deal. He has criticized China uh, mostly for COVID-19, but also for its record of being the world's largest emitter of gases that warm the planet. Um, President Xi made a really interesting comment. He said that the pandemic, Julia, is a reminder for all of us of the repeated warnings of nature, because it's widely believed that the source of the COVID-19 virus was a wildlife market in Wuhan, where animals that are not meant to interact with humans were being slaughtered and sold for consumption. So is China going to emerge as the leader in renewables after years of being the world's top polluter? That is certainly the goal of President Xi that he laid out in his speech at the UN. Yeah, elegantly put, Will. And actually that phrase that you quoted was exactly what I pulled out as well. The pandemic has shown that we can't ignore the, the damage that we're doing to nature here because there is and there remains debate over how this virus started, about the information sharing from China. And President Trump yesterday, as you correctly predicted on the show yesterday, again calling it the China virus and pointing the finger firmly at China. I could have never predicted, Julia, that he would only take around five minutes for his speech. When has President Trump ever gone under the time allotted? I think they had a 15-minute limit, and he just spoke very briefly. It didn't have any praise for President Xi, which I think might have been more an off-the-cuff kind of remark that President Trump made. So my prediction wasn't spot on. But yes, he attacked China for COVID-19 and basically uh, railed in to... Uh, China in a way that we really haven't heard with a kind of aggression uh, directly from the U.S. president. You know, we've heard it from people at the State Department. We've heard very strong words in the past. But for, for President Trump to now say to the United Nations, you know, that this plague, as he called it, has been unleashed onto the world by China. In fact, he continued to call what many people in the United States and elsewhere find deeply offensive, certainly in this part of the world, that he called it the China virus. I mean, people are really outraged to hear that. But President Trump unabashedly used that language, went on the attack, said that China is to blame by allowing flights to take off and travel around the world, in his words, infecting people with the virus. China was so upset by this, even though President Xi's speech, which was pre-recorded, was very measured. But the China, uh, Chinese UN ambassador took the unusual step of calling a press conference to directly respond to President Trump's speech. He said that the U.S. COVID-19 response has been a complete failure. And he said it's time, this is a quote actually, time for some U.S. politicians to wake up from their self-created illusions. 
So China really striking back in a way that we don't normally hear from Chinese diplomats. Even when President Trump in the past, I've been in Beijing and there's been a very inflammatory tweet, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is often reluctant to comment immediately. And when they do, they usually don't name anybody by name. They don't directly respond as pointedly as they did in this case. It really does underscore, Julia, the escalating tensions between the two countries. Yes, and one cannot forget the proximity to a U.S. presidential election here. Uh, well, great to get your your insights and your thoughts on this. And we'll forgive you for the timing mismatch there continuing, especially since it was shorter <laughs> rather than longer. Thanks. Will Ripley, thank you very much for that. All right, let's move on to Tesla. Battery day failing to get investors charged up. Stock down, what, some 5% pre-market. That despite Tuesday's big promises about a super fast Model S and dramatic battery and manufacturing improvements over the coming years. Tasha Keeney is analyst with global asset manager ARK Invest and joins us now. Tasha, I mean, really, I think investors are already charged up this year with the stocks up almost 400%. So we'll skip that part. What was most revealing about what you heard yesterday from uh, Elon Musk and crew? Well, I, I think the, the key takeaway here is, you know, you, you mentioned the $25,000 car. Um, Tesla is reducing battery costs by 50%, increasing range by over 50% and reducing investment. So the cost to build factories by 70%. I mean, if you're a traditional automaker, you must be so scared right now. Um, I mean, you're, you're trying to save your core business in the pandemic. Um, and on top of that, you're trying to build an electric autonomous vehicle. And really, none of them has, have successfully done that, um, especially on the EV front. Um, also, if, if you if you are building an electric vehicle, a lot of automakers are actually using a different form factor of battery than Tesla. So they, they couldn't even try to copy Tesla if they wanted to. They'd actually just have to uh, start with a whole new battery platform. Um, but on top of that, I think it's just going to take, you know, at, at this point with Tesla's patents that they have on these new this new uh, cell structure and architecture, I think that uh, it could be sort of a lifetime advantage that they have over the auto industry. I mean, I think it'll be massively difficult to catch them. I mean, this is, these numbers are a huge 50 percent reduction in cost per kilowatt hour, 50 percent increase in range, as you said, the nearly 70 percent reduction in investment per gigawatt hour. I want to pick you up on what you just said there, because in the past we've discussed this. You've said, look, Tesla's battery technology is, what, four years ahead of the competitors. Are you now saying if, and I'm putting a big emphasis on if, they can achieve this, then that lead would be insurmountable? I, I think that's exactly what this means. And, and, and the cheaper car, um, you know, all, is also another point in that bucket, right? Because now if you want to match Tesla on price and performance, how are you going to do that? They're just, their cars are getting even cheaper. They're breaking into other customer segments. Um, so really, I think their, their market share um, it, it sh- should be a, a lot greater coming out of this announcement. Their, their future market share should be greater coming out of this announcement, too, um, because of that cheaper model. Uh, and I mean, traditional autos are really just wasting their time on things like fuel cells, which we know is a much less efficient technology, doesn't make sense from an infrastructure perspective. Um, so they really even hadn't, haven't even gotten their ducks in a row yet on batteries. And now Tesla's just running away from them. 
It's quite fascinating, isn't it, if we're talking about a $25,000 entry point. And actually, they were saying a fully autonomous Tesla, but we'll skip that bit because I know you get very excited about their advances in uh, <laughs> autonomous technology and their d- data collection too. Because you know, if you look on the lifetime basis of an electric vehicle, it works out cheaper, but it's the entry point, the relative height or the greater cost that's um, difficulty for many people here. If you can bring those kind of costs down, then you know, there's a double whammy here too, but this is all about the future. And I think that's what investors are focusing on today. It's, it looks great, but can they achieve it, Tasha? Why should we believe that they can? Well, I think Tesla sort of already achieved the impossible. Mm. And, and we know that they're um, the leader in batteries. Um, and if you, think, if you think of where are battery breakthroughs happening, um, if they're happening in the lab in these research centers that are outside the company, where's the first place you want to market your new invention? It's going to be Tesla. Um, so I think that, on, you know, on top of their, their own internal work, they're likely seeing the most cutting edge research coming at them from every other place in the world. I mean, Elon Musk has said, if you can build a better battery, show it to us. Um, so so I, I think that it's, it's sort of an easy case to make that if anyone can do this, it's Tesla. I love that um, idea. And, they're yes. a magnet, yes. so. a magnet for all those that have some kind of groundbreaking potential technology. They go to Elon Musk and Tesla first. Tell me why you're excited about the autonomous opportunities again here, because I know it comes down to the data that they're already collecting and again, an advantage that you think they have. Yes. Well, one incremental update that we heard last night. Well, first of all, it's, it's notable that th- this is battery day. And Elon Musk mentioned autonomous technology a number of times. I mean, this is clearly so important to them, and they know that. Um, And and it makes sense to us because we see this as the next largest opportunity in the auto industry. It's going to completely change the way you look at an auto company if they pull off autonomous technology. They're basically going to have software as a service-like margins. But last night we heard, um, so Tesla has been working on this update to autopilot for some time that basically combines two of the steps that you need in the process uh, um, to to make an autonomous car successfully drive. In doing so, they get an order of magnitude improvement um, in the the efficiency and sort of the the, the processing that you can do in in an autopilot. So so that seems to say that you know this this autonomous lead that they have other over other automakers is again going to be accelerated um, by this new thing that they're building, which is this rewrite of their neural net. Um, so Musk said that that would come out um, in full production in the next month. Uh, so that's another really exciting development uh, that I think is likely going to be overlooked. <laughs> Tasha, I'm going to get shouted out for asking this because we have about five seconds, but I know it's a long term price target. Post stock split, what number should we be focusing on for Mark Invest? So we're working on updated research. Look out for that. But our published price target right now, um, if you account for the stock split, split would be about $1,400 per share. $1,400. Yes. And so that's really taking into account the electric and the autonomous opportunity. It's, it, you have to value this company like a technology company that it is. Yeah, I know. This is not a car maker in your view. OK, Tasha Keeney, just a car maker. Tasha Keeney, analyst with ARK Invest. Great to have you with us as always. All right, let's move on. Just do it. And they did. Nike shares up again pre-market after revenue easily beat forecasts, including an 82% spike in online sales. Paula Monica is here. Paula, the CEO, says that digital growth is sustainable. Talk us through the numbers. Yeah, these were phenomenal numbers, Julia. As you pointed out, the digital revenue nearly doubling. I think that sets a very good 
tone for Nike going forward as it, like many other consumer products companies, is shifting to a world where you have to increasingly rely on digital with many stores that are still, if not fully open yet, may have you know uh, hours that have been scaled back and consumers that may not want to go out and shop. So this is good news. But more importantly, I think it's not just a U.S. story. When you look at markets around the world where they've had COVID outbreaks before the U.S., they're really starting to recover. Europe and China had revenue actually go up in the last quarter. And that's a big reason why overall revenue was only down about 1% in the quarter, much better than the really bad drops that many Wall Street analysts were expecting. So this is a very encouraging sign for uh, Nike. And it, it could be good news as well for rivals like Adidas and Under Armour. Both their stocks are rallying on this news too. America down 2%, China up 6%. It is a Nike swoosh style recovery here. Um, I also wanted to talk about the fact that they're basically seeing strength in the categories that they're leaning into here, which is digital and weakness in the ones that they're leaning away from, which is um, selling through third parties, for example. This is important, too. And they gave guidance. Exactly. The guidance was strong, which is clearly a good sign for the company and probably other consumer products makers as well. But as you point out, Julia, the fact that Nike is showing that it can really have its own digital footprint and doesn't necessarily have to rely on the likes of Amazon is, I think, something that many other big brand name companies are going to be watching closely to see if they can do it. I mean, not every company has as loyal a following as Nike does, particularly with younger consumers. But those that do, this is a message here. You can set up your own digital shop. You don't have to necessarily rely on your retail partners you know, it obviously helps having those retail partners, but you can do it on your own as well. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Paula Monica, thank you for the analysis there. All right. These are the stories making headlines around the world. The body of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is expected to arrive at the U.S. Supreme Court shortly, where she will lie in repose Wednesday and Thursday. President Donald Trump will be paying his respects on Thursday, but he hasn't wasted any time in trying to replace her. He says he'll announce his Supreme Court pick on Saturday. CNN Justice Correspondent Jessica Schneider is at the Supreme Court. Jessica, let's focus in on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the importance of this historic day and what we'll see. A historic day indeed, Julia. Good morning. You know, when Justice Ginsburg's casket arrives here at the Supreme Court around 9.30 this morning, so in just a few minutes, uh, just about 100 or more of her former law clerks, they will actually be here. They will serve as honorary pallbearers. And then for the next two days of public viewing, they will stand guard over Justice Ginsburg's casket really uh, in tribute to her. She adored her law clerks, and they obviously adored her. So beginning at 9.30 this morning, after Justice Ginsburg's casket arrives, there will be a private ceremony inside the Great Hall here at the Supreme Court. That will be private. It will be for the family, close friends, and justices. Then after that, Justice Ginsburg's casket will be moved to the portico. That's at the top of the Supreme Court steps here. And that's when the public viewing will begin. We are expecting thousands and thousands of people to make their way here to the Supreme Court over the next two days. We've already seen thousands flock here to the Supreme Court since Justice Ginsburg's death was announced on Friday night. The public viewing will be tonight and tomorrow night until 10 p.m. And then on Friday, Justice Ginsburg will make history. She will be the first woman 
to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. And then next week, we expect there will be a private burial service at Arlington National Cemetery. And Julia Arlington is the same place where Justice Ginsburg's beloved husband, Marty, is also buried. Julia? Yes, together once more. Jessica Schneider in Washington, D.C., thank you for that. All right, it's the second day of the United Nations General Assembly in its first ever virtual format. Leaders from many conflict zones are due to speak, including Yemen, Libya, Cyprus, Venezuela and others. The UNGA continues through 2nd of October. U.S. Vice President Mike Pence safely back in Washington, D.C. after a bird struck Air Force Two mid-flight. It happened after a Trump campaign rally in New Hampshire. As a precaution, the aircraft returned to the airport where it had taken off from. Prince and his staff flew back to Washington on a different plane. All right, coming up after the break, as Johnson & Johnson announces phase three drug trials, a new ruling could ensure there's no coronavirus vaccine this side of Election Day in the United States. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move. You are looking at live pictures of the U.S. Supreme Court. People there waiting to soon see the casket of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg arriving there. They are her law clerks, in fact. There'll be a small private ceremony attended by the family, friends and members of the court too. Ginsburg will then lie in repose at the top of the front of the steps of the building to allow the public to pay their respects. And that will take place until Thursday night. Okay, let's move on. Johnson & Johnson is beginning critical phase three trials for its vaccine candidate today. The fourth company to enter this stage of testing here in the United States. Sources say government health officials are considering new rules for approving a vaccine that would push any authorization beyond Election Day. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Great to have you with us, uh, Elizabeth. Which one should we go on first? Let's talk about Johnson & Johnson. Talk about the key differences, I think, between what Johnson & Johnson is doing in terms of their vaccine and what we've already seen from the likes of Pfizer and Moderna, because it's a different style of dose that's being provided. Yes, let's talk about these four vaccines, Julia, that are now in phase three clinical trials in the United States. We have a list. And so let's take a look at that. So the first one that started was Moderna on July 27th. And then Pfizer started later that day, also July 27th. AstraZeneca is sort of an interesting one. In the United States, they started their trial August 31st. But then about 10 days later, that trial went on hold and is still on hold in the United States because of concerns about an illness of one of the participants. Johnson & Johnson started their trial today. Now, if we look at these, you mentioned any differences. Moderna and Pfizer are using the same type of vaccine, the same vaccine technology. AstraZeneca and J&J are using the same technology, meaning they're, they're the same, what they're different from Moderna and Pfizer. So Moderna and Pfizer are using sort of technology number one. AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson are using technology number two. It is important to note, Julia, that none of the, no vaccine using either of these technologies has ever landed on the market. So they are using technology that's been tried out in various clinical trials, but has never resulted in a vaccine being on the market. So the safety concerns here are high because this technology has never 
been tested in hundreds of millions of people, which is what we would, ex would expect if they get on the market. Now, one difference between J&J and AstraZeneca that we really should point out is that AstraZeneca and the other two, those are two doses. Mm. You have to get a dose, wait a number of weeks, get another dose. Johnson & Johnson is a single dose. If it works, that's a huge advantage that you only have to vaccinate people once. You don't have to go back and do it again. Yeah, I was leading the witness there because that's where I was going initially when I was asking you to comment on the doses. <laughs> a critical difference in terms of how quickly perhaps you can get people dose and not have to go back and give them another dose. Also critical in light of what the FDA is potentially going to be doing here too and wanting to leave what a two month gap before they'll approve these vaccines after the final or the second dose has been given. This is very important time-wise for where we lie today and proximity to the US presidential election. That's right, Julia. So President Trump has said several times, in effect, yes, we're going to have a vaccine by election day. He says that he thinks that that could happen. If the A does what it's expected to do, according to two of our sources, that cannot happen. It would be mathematically impossible. And here's why. What the FDA is expected to do, according to our sources, is to say, you know what, from a certain point in the trial, you have to wait two months. When you hit a certain point in your trial, you have to wait two months. And that, it, that two months will take us well past election day. That means that we would have a vaccine in this country, in the United States, by Thanksgiving at the earliest. Now, we don't know that the FDA is going to make this rule. They were told to expect it, but we don't know that they're going to do that. And the reason, Julia, for this rule is safety. We just were talking about how these two vaccine uh, technologies that are being tested out, they've never been on the market. So there's safety concerns right there. So they want another two months. They want more and more shots in arms of study participants to see if it really is safe. Because if you're going to get an adverse effect, it's going to happen you assume in that one to two month window after the dose is measured and taken. Yes, that's part of it, but also just think of it in terms of numbers. If you're gonna see a one in, you're, you're looking for a one in a million side effect, one in a million people are going to react badly to this vaccine. If you've only given two doses of the vaccine to let's say 10,000 people, you know why not wait another two months and give it to say another 10,000 people? The more shots you have in arms, the more sure you can feel that the vaccine does not have a safety concern. Now, usually if this weren't the pandemic, we'd be waiting years. We would be doing this trial for years to see if there were safety concerns. Unfortunately, we're in a situation where we want this vaccine sooner than years. And so it's sort of a compromise, if you will. These aren't ordinary times. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen, thank you for that. Right, I'm going to hand you over now for more live coverage with Poppy and Jim as the casket of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes its way to the Supreme Court. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.